New Zealand-based home renovation company, 6,593% ROAS. Sydney-based solar company, 2,700% ROAS. Hunter region-based bathroom renovation company, 5,616% ROAS. Melbourne-based building company, 13,182% return on ad spend. Adelaide-based solar company, 2,881% return on ad spend. Guys, the list goes on and on. If you are a trade-based business and you work with projects like roofing, solar, bathroom renovations, kitchen renovations, anything like that, head across to tradey.wiki forward slash pod for podcast. Tradey.wiki forward slash pod for podcast. Book in a conversation. It is game changing. Hello and welcome to Toolbox Talks. I just wanted to make a quick mention here to a review we received on iTunes from Nick OG. Uh, Nick says, I've learned a lot from this podcast, especially as there isn't a lot of stuff out there for tradies. Keep them coming. Thank you. Uh, no worries, Nick OG. I hope you're enjoying it. And uh, if you do have any comments you'd like to leave, or if you're enjoying uh, anything specifically, then please leave us a review in iTunes or SoundCloud and we will be sure to read it out in upcoming episodes. Stay tuned for this episode. There are many different types of trades. Obviously, we immediately resonate with trades like building, electrical, plumbing, HVAC, all those kind of things. However, there's other trades as well that you do have to do an apprenticeship for that sometimes we neglect. So things like hairdressing or maybe baking, or in this instance, in today's podcast, I'm really excited to be talking with celebrity chef Chris Cranswick-Smith, and we're talking about his experience throughout the journey of his cooking career. So we start off with his apprenticeship, then we dive a little bit into uh, the travels that he's experienced as a chef. Uh, we talk a little bit about his uh, ownership in a business. So he ran a successful restaurant in Sydney. And then we talk about his role as a celebrity chef. We're talking a little bit about what he does now. So he's actually enrolled into a university course and he's studying again. And he's also working on a billionaire's super yacht. <laughs> so it's a really interesting story. And um, I know you guys are going to love this. And there's a really strong message uh, to communicate out there to anybody that's considering getting into a trade. You know, where you start is definitely not where you end up. So stay tuned. Giving tradies and contractors around the globe the tools to run a modern business. You're listening to Toolbox Talks from the Site Shed. Now here's your host, Matt Jones. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Matt. Good to speak to you. Absolutely. We've been talking about having you on the show for a little while now, so it's um, I'm glad that it actually panned out because you do have a very interesting story. And um, you know, as you may or may not be aware, one of the, the strong messages that we try and uh, communicate on the site shed is, you know, where you where you begin is not always where you end up. And um, we also have a pretty strong drive to, you know, dispel that myth that, you know, serving an apprenticeship and getting yourself into a trade is a, is a default option. So I know it's great to have someone like yourselves on the show that's definitely got, you know, quite a high, high profile uh, within, your, within your trade as a chef and, of course, somebody that, you know, now has and lives, you know, what some people would, you know, think is a pretty amazing lifestyle. Um, so mm. we're going to dive a little bit more into that. So, hey, thanks again for your time today. You're welcome, mate. It's good to good to chat. And, um, mate, I think it's a, a good point that, you know, trades are so diverse, aren't they? I'm, I'm a chef um, and there's there's a, a lot of other trades out there as well. But, um, yeah, like you say, let's get into it. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Oh, mate, you know, I, I tossed up between being a chef and a vet and I, uh, I fell into the chef category. Okay, so you went from uh, protecting animals to eating them. Uh, yeah, exactly. Mate, they're, they're, they're delicious, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. So what, what was, give, give me the logic behind those, that decision. Mate, to, to be quite honest, I think I was in too much of a rush. I had a look at it when I was 15 and there was an option to start an apprenticeship at 15. I was 19 and be living overseas before my 20th birthday, which is exactly what I did versus trying to get the markets, you know, to even be a vet, to even, I mean, to even get into uni at all, let alone be a vet and then do a five-year degree and, you know, pop out the other end of that at 25 or so. So, mate, so, I, was, I was in too much of a rush in short. So, did you, did you uh, finish um, high school in, in Australia? No, I left um, sort of early-ish in year 11, pretty okay. much. Yeah. So, year 11 for our international listeners is the second last year in high school. So, you would have been, what, 16 or 15 or something? Yeah, it was just before I was turning 16. So, I sort okay. of arguably started my apprenticeship when I was 15 or, or just when I turned 16, yeah. Okay. And how? so, tell me about that uh, transition into a trade. How did, you, how did you find yourself a job or whatever? So, the way it popped up, I'd, I'd always cooked from a young age um, and my parents were, were always very supportive of that. They sort of harnessed that, um, that interest very much. And basically, I was still keeping my options open in, uh, towards the end of high school. I was picking subjects to maybe, you know, be a vet. I liked economics and things like that at school, but I was also doing hospitality and cooking and also French as well as I always wanted to live overseas. That was very much the lure of it. And then uh, something popped up at the hotel school at the Hotel Intercontinental, which offers a, a formal apprenticeship training program. It's a little bit like the difference between going to a private college or, or a TAFE. It's still an apprenticeship either way you look at it. And something popped up there. My mum had, had noticed it in the paper. We went, went along to an open day and I, I just booked straight in pretty much and got started about a month later. Wow, it's, pretty, it's, it's a bit of a go-getter move for a 15-year-old. Yeah, mate, like I say, I was, I was in too much of a rush. I always have been my whole life, so yeah. wanted to wanted to get on with it. And I also didn't see the, the point of wasting time. Um, arguably, some parents might look at that differently, but, you know, that's the beauty with, with trades. If you know what you want to do, you've already got an interest and a skill set in it, whether it's knocking up sheds in the backyard with your old man or, or for me, uh, cooking. You know, you can get right into it right away and get on with your life. I think it's a um, as a powerful message there for any parents that are out there listening as well. I mean, I know I know that there's a lot of parents, especially in Sydney, you know, where they grow up in that whole private school um, environment that mm. are not as supportive as your parents uh, were when it came when it comes to entering into a trade. I mean, I, I know we I attended a, a roundtable event with the Department of Education down in Canberra a little while back and. Mm. Um, that was one of the big the big issues. We were talking about vocational education and training in schools, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but it's basically a program that helps kids get a foot into an apprenticeship while they're mm. at school. Um, and it's a fantastic program. But one of the big objections that the educators there were saying they get is- So while, while they're still at high school, you said that? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. One of the big objections that they get is from parents. So parents might go to the private school and then they might want to, you know, mm. they might have gone on and done accounting or something like that. And they just expect that that's where their kids are going to end up, mm. um, regardless of the fact that their kids may yep. not be as academic as they were. Yeah, mate, com- completely hear that, that, that topic of conversation. I think from a very personal level, and I hope this resonates with your listeners or, or their parents more so, um, uh, definitely my mum was very supportive. My dad, very much liked the idea of um, me going to university. I talked him around, but you know that was a bit of a push to talk him around, um, and and understandably. But I, I think that that lit the fire a little bit more so inside, and that then really drove me, you know, to not 
uh, not just be a chef, but I wanted to be the best chef. I wanted to be the best businessman. I wanted to open up as many doors as I could and really show that that was the right decision for me. At the time, I, I almost had to prove it to, to, to my parents that, that, that that was the best decision for me because I knew what I wanted to do. I was very, very passionate about it and I knew I wanted to go on and make it my career. So there's definitely that argument to things as well. Yeah, awesome. So yeah. Tell me a little bit about, you know, tell me a little bit about your experience as an apprentice chef as a 15-year-old. How did that, when I, what was the, did you end up, do you have to, uh, were you in a job as well while you were studying or how does that work? Yeah, with the, um, the Hotel Intercontinental host, Hotel School, you would basically do a month of theory and then you'd go through and do a month of practical work working in a, in a different section of each of their, of, of the hotel. You know, they had banquets and pastry kitchen and about five different restaurants and a Japanese section, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that was a really amazing introduction to the world of cooking. From there, I think, as I say, the fire was kind of lit inside and I, I wanted to then go into a little bit more of the, you know, the hardcore world of, of cooking. So from there, I bounced around um, uh, different restaurants, you know, always of a, of a hatted level or, you know, a very high rating sort of level. And the more that I did that, the more hours I worked the less you get paid normally in those, <laughs> in those good restaurants. But again, as I say, you know, the, the fire was lit. And I think, um, I think in a lot of trades, particularly cooking, you've really got to get in there and work hard to start with and prove yourself. And then you can, you can go up, up, up in the world from there. And that's very much where, where I sort of pushed myself to go. Yeah, just, uh, what, what, just for the listeners who, aren't, who don't know, uh, and probably myself included, what does Hatted mean? So how did is it, it's our rating system, or you know, one of the main rating systems, I, I guess, in Australia, similar to the Michelin star in in Europe, and you get one, two, or three hat is is a very high level, and so that that was sort of the end of the spectrum that I wanted to to end up in. Sorry, I just lost you there for a little bit. So you're saying you basically get one, two, or three hats? Is that how it works? That's correct, but even to earn one hat is, um, you know, is is amazing. Not not every restaurant is is rated with one hat and okay. to start with. So yeah, so even just to earn one one like like one Michelin star is yeah. um is a very high rating. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So um, when you completed your apprenticeship, you took off travelling, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Very much. So that that was always always the idea for me. I think. Um, I think, you know, a lot of us are, well, it's become clear to me now how much we're influenced as kids by our parents. So my influence was my old man speaking French pretty well fluently. Um, he's in the wine industry, so I ended up in France a lot and even well before I started my apprenticeship and then again a few times throughout it. So that was a really natural progression for me, obviously food and wine and then France and French food and learning the language. So I just went straight to Biarritz in the southwest of France. Um to cool little surfy towns that was still nice to be on on the water and worked in then a one michelin star restaurant there for a year yeah wow yeah okay cool and then so where where did you head from uh, from Biarritz? then where so from Biarritz, i pretty much bounced around europe for five and a half years i came home for about a year and a half in the middle there Mm -hmm. um and worked at uh worked at a couple of restaurants in sydney but um, interestingly enough, from because where I was living in France was very close to the Spanish border, and I, I had such an interest in languages um, from a young age, I just fell in love with Spain. Um, going down to San Sebastian all the time, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it. It's just one of the most amazing towns in Europe. Yep. Um, started teaching myself Spanish, and then I ended up actually working in Madrid, just because it was the most neutral place as far as the Spanish language 
goes in San Sebastian, they tend to like to speak Basque, which is a language that sounds nothing like French or Spanish. And in Barcelona, as amazing as it is, they speak Catalan there. So I just took myself to Madrid. I thought it was the safest place to try and get work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tell me, um, I'm, I'm sure there's a huge difference in working in a kitchen in, um, you know, the south of France or Spain compared to working in a kitchen uh, in Australia. What were some of the um, immediate observations? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, they were pretty hardcore for a start. And in the UK as well, I did, did about nine months in a restaurant in London. They're pretty full on, you know, Gordon Ramsay style things being thrown at you and all of that. But again, that was there was just that fire inside me and that was the, the path that I felt as though I had to take. Chris, are all chefs angry? <laughs> um, mate, in a word, yes, or a little bit crazy, maybe. Um, but there's there's something funny I've noticed a, about chefs from my perspective now, which I, I know we're going to get to in a minute. But there's there's almost this thing with chefs where they want to prove how hard they work and how hardcore the environment that they work is. So I meet a lot of chefs now that are so proud to tell you that they work 18 hours a day. And when I used to go around gloating about that, going, oh, I only slept, you know, four hours every night this week. And I, I always saw, saw my friends give me funny looks. And now I, with the perspective that I have, now I, I understand that, that it's, um, yeah, it just seems like a crazy career choice, doesn't it? To go work 18 hours a day and, um, and be yelled at and have stuff thrown at you. And <laughs> I, I don't, I, I don't yeah. know if it's like, it's because it sells or it's because the media likes to show that sort of stuff. But everything you see on television is people just being screamed at. <laughs> yeah, for, well, pretty much, pretty much. And look, that's why it's a young man's game, definitely. You know, as a kid, I loved all that. I loved being a, a part of that. And that's why I'm so happy, Matty. I've got to tell you that I started at 15. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely worked with people throughout my career, you know, who were starting an apprenticeship in their late 20s, particularly since the whole MasterChef generation has, has come on. And I think that's amazing for food. I think it's amazing for the industry, for the trade as a whole. But God, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't start an apprenticeship in my late 20s and, and deal with that. It's, def- it's definitely a young man's game <laughs> or a young woman's game in, in that sense. So um, I wonder as well if it's a bit of a cultural thing like I mean, in do you, I mean, obviously, you've worked in restaurants all over the world. Are there certain locations, certain places where, you know, that attitude is far more prominent than others? Like, is it the same in Sydney as it is in France or do they just scream at you in France and not so much in Sydney? Or? Oh, good question. I, I think it's very prominent in the, in the higher echelon of restaurants. I think whether yeah. you're in Australia, France or Spain, it is very similar. The UK is probably known to be the most hard hardcore but what seems to be happening now is a lot of Aussie chefs end up in the UK anywhere from London through to Edinburgh or Dublin or anything else and then in most of the top end restaurants here as far as I understand they're mainly stuck now with with British chefs or an Irish and that sort of thing so it feels like that that's the only way that people are, are putting up with that hardcore nature of the industry where well hey at least they're having a working holiday you know and I think in some senses there's a six-month visa requirement or whatever so people you know, change countries, get their asses kicked for that time, and then they'll travel around, you know, the other side of the world for a few months. Yeah, okay. But it, it's it's all over social media now, both <laughs> in this country and others, that um, there's a real shortage of chefs and what's the industry going to do? How are they going to fix it? So I think the answer to that is encouraging more people in into trades in the first place. Well, I mean, look, it's not just chefing. I'm sure you're aware, you know, that like there's a, there's a real shortage of trades in general, and there's mm. actually as a bigger issue, there's a declining interest in people entering into trades, which is, you know, why we have such a strong position on, you know, communicating the advantages of, of serving mm. an apprenticeship and of getting a trade. 
Um, mm. So, I mean, speaking to people like yourselves is, is really powerful when you, we're trying to communicate that to people that are potentially in similar situations that you were when you were their age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that, that's correct. But I mean, um, where I am now is, is, is an amazing um, niche of the industry. And I'm so happy in that sense that I, I did my trade. Um, and I've, I've gotten to where I am now many years later. Yeah, excellent. So let's dive into that a bit. So after you travelled yep. for five years, yep. um, you came back to Sydney and yep. um, you started a company. Yeah, yep, that's correct. So I had a restaurant in, uh, here in Sydney. Then mm-hmm. I, um, I had to put my fingers in a few other pies there as well. I had shares then of also a catering business and also a cafe as well. And uh, so that, you know, I, th- I think as a young chef or young, young um, person in in, in any trade, your aspiration and certainly my own personal motivation was to knock it over, do it as quick as I could, work as hard as I could, and then open my own business. I mean, isn't isn't that the most amazing thing about doing a trade? Yeah, well, it is. However, I suppose what I would like to hear from you is, mm. you know, that a little bit about that segue from, you know, working in, you know, high, high status restaurants to then coming back, starting your own company. So, yeah, yeah, sure, you're an acclaimed chef and you're very good at what you do. However, how good were you at running a business? Well, look, I learned a lot on the job. Let's put it like that. Yep. <laughs> that's the short answer. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? I mean, there's, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, we've started the site shed is because especially, I mean, we found, especially with trades, you know, you can go through and you can serve, you can do your apprenticeship and you can learn the trade. However, when it comes to running a business, there seems to be limited resources available that are specific to, you know, what you actually need to know. So, we know mm. part of the, the drive behind the site shed is making those resources available to people. So, you know, when they are mm. in that situation, they can kind of leverage it to them as much as they can. Yeah. Yeah, mate, I, I understand. What's your take on, uh, and sorry, sorry to flip the question around, but on the resources that are available when we do all that, when we all do do our trades, do you feel as though there should be more of a focus in the initial apprenticeship term of running a business? Do you feel that that's something that's that, that's missed and that should be focused on more so? Look, I think there's a bit of a disconnect there because um, realistically, I mean, I know when I did my apprenticeship, in order to get my license, I had to do a, it was a compulsory, a compulsory module of that course was a business, was a, was a business uh, module. So, but however, it was ridiculous. Like, I mean, it, it was six months or something and they taught us how to write a business letter, you know, it was just a complete waste of time. So, I, I think, you know, where they may have had good intentions in, um, in, in educating people how to run a business, I think realistically, it wasn't their main focus. They just want to teach people the basics of how to get or how to actually, you know, use their trade and some of the skills that are associated. So, then you can implement those skills that you learn while you're out on the job. Um, but, but I think realistically, any of the business style information that you need or anything that can teach you how to run a business, you pretty much have to learn on your own. So. Yeah. Correct. And I still think it's the same. I mean, unless you're going to go and enroll in a business course, um, you know, there's. I, don't, I feel like there's limited resources available to 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 trade specific organisations that can really help them um, yeah. move in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, um, I understand that. And I look, and I don't know if I can really point the finger at anyone in particular. At the end of the day, it comes back. I mean, 
you know, the government probably are happy to invest in things, but you know, the, it's 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 a funding it's a funding issue at the end of the day. And if there's you know there's not funds being um, implemented, then you know they can't offer these programs. So I mean, you really got to, I suppose, look at you know really where where the priority lies from a from a funding point of view. And I know Australian government is pulling funding out of apprenticeships and out of TAFE and stuff like that. Right. So there's now you've got a scenario, well, now we have a scenario in Australia where you've got you know you've got people that are are qualified on on paper, however, have less experience and you know less technical knowledge, yet are running businesses. So it's kind of a dangerous situation. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the, I think it's quite a well-known fact that statistically, you know, a lot of small businesses fail in their first year or first three years. But I think when you dive into that, I think a lot of the reason for that is that. I dare say the vast majority of people who are running a small business may have done anything from a trade, you know, through to a, a TAFE course, but short of actually doing a degree. Yeah. And so if you look at in uh, um, other currently done a degree, which, you know, will involve um, any forms of economics or accounting or, or anything else. And so I know when I opened my restaurant, I meant to, and I stress the word meant to, do a small business course at TAFE for, I think, six months or a year before I started. I didn't get around to it because I found a, um, a site that I liked and I signed a lease. The next thing, you know, I'm locked into basically coming up with a certain amount of money every year. That's yeah. what, you know, that's, that's the basis of what a lease is. It's, it's, not, it's not so much what you're going to do with a site. It's just that, say, the lease is 150000 a year for five years. Well, I'm, I'm now in a $750,000 commitment. Yeah. And the, the, the scary thing about that is that this process can happen so quickly and before you know it, well, hey, you're up for 750 grand over, over five years. And what I guess what I found was that it all just moved very quickly. And luckily enough for me, I, I, uh, I was very interested in the business side of things. I can't stress that enough. Um, yeah. And so I then did dive headlong into working out how to work on my business rather than working in my business. And that, that was very much what, what gave me the success of running a good business. But I do fear for people who dive into it, don't take on any resources, podcasts, things like this, researching, you know, the internet is a fantastic tool, tool these days that wasn't around 20 years ago. And uh, that's, for, for me, that's the most important success to, to running a small business, having the ability to work on it, not in it, and constantly learning, empowering yourself and being dynamic as well as the market changes and new technology comes out. Yeah. So was there a pivotal moment for you entering into and starting your own business? Mm. Uh, sorry, in terms of that realisation? or Well, I mean, or- was there like a penny drop moment where you were sitting in the south of France and you thought, you know what, I'm going to go home and start a company? How oh. did, <laughs> how did well, it come about? I- no, I mean it, it was it was in 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 that it was in that decision I made when I was fifteen as to whether I wanted to stay in school or or, or start the trade and the, the the penny drop was no I want to start the trade because I want to have that opportunity to run my own business and live overseas as well that, you know that was the other huge huge incentive but the penny drop was always always to run my own business and as soon as possible so I I guess I worked professionally for ten years fifteen three to twenty five before I opened the restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the, uh, you know, what was the biggest challenge that you faced when you did run your own business? Yeah. Um, I think just uh, probably two things. I mean, making ends meet, but then in terms of the restaurant, and I'm, I'm sure this analogy can apply to, to people in, in, in any business, it was really appeasing customers or my customers with a sunted. So chefs by nature can be pretty egotistical. And I think it, I think it comes from that hardcore 
kitchen environment that, that a lot of us come from where we think that it's all about us. When we're working in a restaurant, particularly a high-end one, and the restaurant's full every single night um, and customers come in to, you know, dare I say it, grace in the bask in the presence of, you know, said, said celebrity chef. But <laughs> it's pretty much like that. But, you know, in that sense, the market has changed a lot as well. You know, tablecloths have gone from restaurants, formalities have gone, et cetera. So we're living in a very different world now in that sense. Yeah. But when I opened my restaurant and I opened the doors, well, guess what? I had to really work hard to work out how to get people to come through those doors and part with their hard-earned money. Yeah. And then from there, provide them with a service that they wanted. So I couldn't just be doing what I wanted for me. Um, I had to provide a style of food in a style of setting that they wanted. That that was definitely the key thing. I mean, with that said, I suppose, I mean, I obviously, I obviously went to your restaurant many times um, mm. and I know that the style of food there was quite unique. And I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the south of France and, you know, I, I kind of, I could definitely see that influence within your food. So, I'm guessing that was part of your business plan. I want to bring this style of food to Sydney. Yeah, it was. You know, you know what the interesting thing is, Maddie, that um, the first line of my business plan said, I want to open the type of place that I want to go to. Now, that was as a 25-year-old who liked good food, but I also I was a bit over the obnoxiousness of the fine dining style of restaurants that I worked in. The interesting thing is, and, and I think you saw this transition firsthand, when I opened the restaurant, I think I was still cooking for me. I was trying to do, you know, very sexy fine dining food. Even if I thought I was dumbing it down, I was still stuck in what I had been doing for the last 10 years. And to be honest, you know what? That didn't really work. It wasn't working. The, the venue wasn't full every day. Um, I wasn't hitting my targets as far as what my business plan said of, you know, 60 people a night all spending $55 per person. And, you know, that spits out a number at the other end of the spreadsheet and you're therefore going to pay your bills. And that's why I stress very much about that point about tailoring a product to what your customers want. And so I popped my head out of the kitchen one day and I had this manager in a suit and tie, you know, sort of bending over saying, yes, sir, no, sir, all of that. And it just hit me that what was happening there was not what the first line of my business plan said. So I basically sacked everyone, <laughs> changed, changed the, yeah, just pretty much just kicked everyone out. Um, <laughs> And what I did then was actually remove myself from the kitchen and I put myself out the front of the venue and and only then that I actually began work on the business and been it. Wow. Interesting. What a segue. Yeah. 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 Big time. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, let's talk a little bit now about the, um, I suppose that transition from a business owner into, into the television show that you were, that you were uh, on. How did that come about? Mm. So I think like, um, like a lot of things that happened within the business, I, very much made the opportunities arise. I looked at the, I think a lot of chefs and small business owners look at their their business as an emotion. You know, it's a reflection of themselves. I was lucky enough one way or another and smart enough to look at the business as a business, you know, and that, that's the primary thing, isn't it? A business has to always be a business, even if it's a direct reflection of you. So, I looked at Ready Steady Cook as, as as an extension of the business. I called them up. I asked how I could audition for the show. One of the producers came into the restaurant, actually unbeknownst to me at the time, but again, I was, I was running around at the front of the restaurant. She liked me. She sent me an email the next day and said, why don't you come in and, um, and do an audition for Ready Steady Cook? So I did that. I got, got the part straight away. I think there's 12 chefs on every, every year at that time. And I got paid a few hundred bucks per episode, but every single one of us 
that was on the show either had our own restaurants or, of course, were, you know, executive chefs and part owners of, of the venues that they worked in. Every one of us said we would have done it for free because the value that it, that it did bring to the business was just monumental. So is that value as in getting people into the restaurant or is it value as in your, your personal brand and profile or both? Oh, yeah, good, good question. I, I guess I meant as far as just getting people into the restaurant. But yes, it did then for sure create a brand as well. And um, I picked up an endorsement from there. And so I did an endorsement for two years as well. And that basically paid in one day what Ready Steady Cook paid in a whole year. So, <laughs> that, I mean, literally. So that, um, that, that, that was amazing financially as well. I mean, and the thing is that all, of course, went through the business because you invoice, you know, with your ABN and that sort right. of thing. It's, not, it's not, not cash money in the back pocket for a holiday to, you know, to Italy. So you're building uh, value into your company at the same time. Correct, and that's that's all it is, mate. You know, you when you're running a business, it's um you have a lot of a lot of costs, particularly in a restaurant. You know, especially if you're fitting everything out and constantly replacing plates and glassware and up, updating systems and procedures and staff. And staff, of course, is your your biggest cost in in most businesses, particularly a restaurant. So that was um that was just a, another way of bringing bringing dollars into the business, which paid the bills and allowed me to keep operating. So tell me, Chris, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Oh, I would say a chef that I worked for, he was very much a, a mentor. He was probably the only chef that I was that I really wanted to do well for rather than was just being scared shitless of. <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, he's a really good mate. He's very, very, very successful now. He has a whole chain of burger joints and all of that. He he went from, you know, being a fine dining chef to being one of those many burger operators in Sydney, but he has about nine locations countrywide now and he's just doing really well but uh, his advice to me the day before I opened the restaurant was listen to everything that every person or every customer says to you now I'll be honest that rattled me for a while because I took that on and the thing is when I opened the restaurant I'm sure a lot of small business owners can empathize with this everyone's got an opinion everyone's everyone wants to give you advice and of course it's all well-intentioned it took me about nine months to learn how to filter that advice. So mm. I never dismissed anything, but I learned how to filter it and then take on board the information that I thought was value and valuable, excuse me, and um and you know and dismiss or, you know, get get rid of the, the rest information and rest of the information and not not stew on it or, or sweat yep. it. Yep. So with that in mind, is there any one piece of advice that you'd you'd give to upcoming chefs or, you know, business owners in general? Yeah, 100%. My, my piece of advice that I, I always give to everyone is to have a handle on how you're going to run the business um, or what I said earlier, I guess, of, as far as working on your business and just not, not getting stuck working in it because a lot of people get really rattled when they open a business and they're so busy working 15 hours a day doing the part of that business that they know how to do. So for me, it was for cook, cooking, other trades as, uh, are other skills, of course, but I really needed to stop and take time out to learn how to operate the business, just constantly look at the figures and the numbers, look at the outgoings versus the incomings, yep. and just make sure that mate, that the ends meet. That's absolutely key. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, actually. We've just actually, at this week, there's... um. There's a bunch of uh, podcasts coming out. Uh, we just released one, which is on SEER systems. And then there will one be coming out tomorrow, which is episode TWS 013, which is on 
on building a database, which I know you were also very good at at, um, at your former restaurant. Mm. And then the very last um, episode in that series, which will be coming out on this Friday, which is TWS014, episode 14, that's actually talking about understanding your business metrics. So that complements basically what you're saying. Um, okay. Yeah, so 100%. What's the best thing you've ever done to find new customers? I think what you just said there, uh, data, database management was absolutely the most important thing for me, as well as constantly harnessing new technology. Okay. Yeah. Explain. So in terms of, um, I mean, database management in a, in a restaurant is just so important because there's some incredible um, database management software out there. It is a little bit of an investment in terms of your time. The money is almost just absolutely non, non, non-negatable in, in terms of the value that it brings back to you, but your time, it can be a couple of hours a day as far as constantly updating your database and, and sending newsletters out with promotions and specials. Um, are you talking about like customer relationship management, like CRM, or are you referring more to like email, email marketing platforms or... Uh, both really, okay. yeah. We we yeah we we use both tactics. I mean, the I guess in you know in terms of a restaurant, obviously you're looking for constant repeat business. Yeah, it's also a very 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 competitive market out there. Cus- customers absolutely have the choice of where they're going to go, yeah, um, and whether they want to part with with their hard earned money. So I built a database up to about eight and a half thousand people by the end of it. Yep. We would run different sorts of events once a month, you know, just to drive business in. We just came up with fun ideas, like we did a music-themed night where we would research someone, say, like the Beatles or Michael Jackson, and we would find songs that had food-specific um, uh, words in them, and then we would do a five-course menu and uh, that that would relate to a song and would play the songs all night. And it was just I just came up with it for a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, and we'd sell out every month. We'd do that on a Wednesday night and we would be absolutely full, whereas on a Wednesday night, normally we might be only half capacity. So yeah. um, I definitely had – I always had fun with what I did. And it Innovation. Was always, yeah, it was always definitely a reflection of, of myself. I think that's important. But in terms of technology evolving, I mean, something I've seen going around on Facebook still, which I'm, I'm shocked about, is there's now a whole bunch of different online booking platforms. Uh, Dimmy is the main one. They're incredible. They're the open table, I think, in the US and like that. Um, they partner with every single food blog and food website there is. You know, there's hundreds of them, and then they've partnered with the majority of restaurants that there are out there. And they have a widget which they put on your own site, and they also have have these widgets on on all of the other sites as well. That was open um, table, was it? Yeah, I think it's open table in the US and and top table in the UK. Oh, okay, right. uh, so- and um, yeah, Dimmy. Dimmi in, in Australia, D-I-M-I, it means tell me in, in Italian, but it's an absolute necessity. I mean, it's 2016, come on, like yeah. restaurants that still don't have a website or don't accept online bookings to me is, is just crazy because there's extra money spent in staffing. You, If somebody calls at 10 o'clock in the morning and the staff don't start until midday, customer's just going to call the next restaurant. Yeah, No, they don't wait. People live in too much of a fast-paced world now, yeah. so- the idea with Dimmy is, you know, they can just book at their own will. You you can also allocate um, specific table times. You can block out table times. So on a weekend where you want to have an early sitting and a late sitting, you just allocate tables at 6, 6.30 and 7 o'clock and then you do a block out and then you allocate tables again, 8.30, 9, 9.30. With the cost of rents and stuff these days, 
you can't just do one sitting in a restaurant. You can't let everyone turn up at 7.30 when they want to eat and then your venue's dead again at, at 10 o'clock. So yep. harnessing technology is, is just key. And I've, I've, I made the Facebook reference because I've seen a few people uh, recently posting on Facebook, oh, what do you guys think about Dimmy? Is it something I should put on my restaurant? And I'm, I'm just amazed that in 2016, there's still that type of discussion. Question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one, yeah. one of the other things that I see, you know, commonly, and it just blows me away, is the amount of people that won't accept credit cards like American Express. Oh, yeah. And from a business owner's point of view, I just, for the life of me, cannot understand why somebody would would not do that. I mean, the object is to make the journey as easy as you can for your customer. And if, mm. you know, you've also got to consider things like what kind of customer is going to be carrying an American Express card? Yes. You know, like why would you want to, you know, in any way not facilitate that person? And yeah, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a charge associated with it. But if you're smart, you'll build that cost into your price. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's very well said. Of course, you, you, and that comes back to you know basic business skills, basic basic accounting skills. That yeah, you're right. You, you just build the cost cost in. I mean, I've seen now. Uh, well, when I had the restaurant, you know, I loved it when I had tradies turn up, you know, to fix an oven or something like that. And they had, you know, and I think there's invoices to go, you yeah. know, a little app on Pay their on their phone, and they could send me the invoice straight away. They'd punch my ABN in. Yeah, but you know, it was win win. Some of them have the little plugins where they had a credit card straight on their yeah. iPhone. It, it was crazy to me when tradies would turn up, you know, and they're always small businesses and they would, they'd send me an invoice later and then there'd be, you know, terms on it of 30 to 60 days. And, you know, cash flow management alone is, it's, it's absolutely the biggest killer in small businesses. So these guys who paid a small fee to, to buy, to buy the application or buy the plugin, but get paid straight away. That's that's one of the key successes of of small business. Absolutely, I yeah. You couldn't have said that better. And it's one of the things that we see so often out there in the workspace. And it's look, it, it is harder for some businesses than others. But anyone yeah. that's running a you know an emergency service or a service based business with sort of maintenance kind of you know that kind of business model, there's no reason why you shouldn't be taking payment on site. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't. I mean, if you're running, if you're a builder and you're doing like long projects, and it's a little bit different, you know. But if you're running a maintenance-style business, then there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't be taking payment. You've done the work, get paid, get out. Yeah, correct. And you then get into as well, Maddie, like just, you know, valuing your own time. And I know I've heard some of our own mates talk about how much time it takes to chase people up to get paid, you know, and then if you start going, well, my time is worth $50 an hour and I've spent three hours chasing people this week for payments that I should have already had that I could have been putting into the business. You're down 150 bucks on your own time, yep. and you're down you're down the the you know the physical cash in your own cash flow. And um, as a small business, you can't afford it. Nobody can. And I got to say, as much as running a restaurant is it is a tough game, the one thing that I was always so happy about was we always get paid yeah. straight away. Yeah, you know, there's there's no 30 day invoice terms or, or anything on a on a corporate function. And if I can go on a segue with that, I, I love the Amex point that you brought up. We I was very dynamic in, in the business. I'd make the rules up at times, to be honest, but I felt as though I had to to run a smart business and, and keep have as much customer attention as I could. So the Amex, yeah, that that would cost us a bit more. We'd pay three percent instead of 0.7 of a percent versus with a normal Visa card, and that's why a lot of small businesses won't take it. But you know what? When corporates came in and they were doing a three, four, five thousand dollar function, well, there was a three percent Amex surcharge. That's normal. Yeah. You know, they, it wasn't a problem for them. When a young couple came in and used used their Amex because they wanted to get a few extra Qantas frequent flyer points, well, there was no surcharge. Yeah. 
you know, simple as that. But that's yeah. I, for me, I feel that's running a small business, being dynamic. I don't like the idea of having, you know, very set stringent rules because you're going to lose a customer somewhere if you're if you're too rigid with your rules. Yeah, I mean, it happened to me. I went to a very very well known restaurant in Sydney with with uh, with colleagues, and they wouldn't accept mm-hmm. American Express, and yeah. I just couldn't believe it. I was absolutely blown away, and I ended up having to actually transfer money to them to pay for it. And I've never been back there. I'll never go back there. Yeah. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. But moving along, we're going to wrap up soon. But I just want to talk a little bit now about. Where you're at at the moment, I know you um, you sold your restaurant you know last year, and you've you've taken a bit of a different direction. Do you want to tell us a bit about what you're up to now and why you made that decision to to move into a different sort of lifestyle? Yeah, well, so I now work on super yachts. I, I did actually do some of that when when I was in Europe before. I didn't didn't get into that then. Um, but basically, when I was in Europe uh, years ago, I went travelling around France and all parts of Europe, obviously, and I, I basically saw all these huge big shiny white boats around Monaco and my immediate thought was wow well I'm pretty sure people are going to need to be fed on them be it crew or guests or, or both I had no idea you know how many crew was on a on an average boat to start with but I, I looked into that at the time and now that I've got out of the restaurant game here I've gone back to that because I just have the most amazing job in the world um, I can't actually say who I work for but it's a it's an American billionaire there's now no problems or stress with money or finances in in my life working for somebody like that but I'm still very much in in my own industry and I I find that quite empowering because I think no matter what industry we're in it they're, they're all so diverse I think for a long time I just thought my industry was fine dining restaurants and then I realized well there's you know it's so much more diverse than that from cafes you know where you can work 6 a.m to 3 p.m instead of working 9 a.m until midnight um, catering companies where you never even have to be customer focused. It's all dealing with corporate clients, which is typically a lot easier. And then, of course, through to working on super yachts. So I work 11 weeks on, 11 weeks off. I get flights all around the world. They'll send me back back home every every time on my rotation. I get paid for the whole year. I just came back from uh, Jamaica last Saturday or the Saturday before. I was all over the, the Caribbean for three months before that and I was all over Italy and um, France throughout European summer last year or, or our winter and it's um, yeah it's pretty special okay well I just threw up so thanks very much for that um, <laughs> but look I suppose the moral of the story there is for any listeners out there that are you know apprehensive into getting into a trade this is the kind of spaces that it could potentially lead you you know you could you could be living living on a super yacht with a you know working for an american billionaire <laughs> if you put the work in and get it done yeah yeah mate it's um it's pretty sp- all right well look well, that's I th- it and no sorry go ahead no no after you after you mate i was just going to say now I, I know you're you're also um you've also started studying again so do you want to tell us a little bit about you know what what you're studying and why you've decided to do that uh yeah sure all right i can do that so i think t- today's actually my first day of uni so uh, <laughs> i am I have got open on my laptop right now a book on accounting for decision making. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's riveting. But no, so I'm studying. It's called a Bachelor of Property and Real Estate. A couple of reasons for that, I guess. Throughout the years, I had the restaurant. I had a lot to do with leases, lease renegotiations, valuation. You know, on square meterage for for leases and things. And now, with my amazing job, I'm also doing as much property investing as I as I can. The degree is three years, 
it's fully online. The, the cloud server that I'm using at Deakin University, if anyone's interested, is absolutely amazing. Wow, the resources that are, that are there are, are incredible. So it's a three-year degree, so I'm 100% going to stay on the super yacht I'm on for three years. I can still study while I'm there or sitting on a beach in Thailand or at, at home in Sydney. It, it really doesn't matter. I'm unsure whether I'll 100% use the degree at the end of it, but it's, it's a nice option to have a career change one day if I want to stop floating around on a super yacht for the rest of my life. I don't know. Well, no intentions of it right now, but I am, it's, you know, life goes on, doesn't it? Yeah. But yeah, so it's all about accounting and economic principles and all sorts of things. So I'm really happy I've got that life experience with the, um, the running of the business for, for seven years, but we'll, we'll see how it goes into uni. I've never done a degree. So I find, find that kind of empowering to be able to, yeah, to I- still cook on a super yacht and, um, and get a degree at the same time instead of working in a bar for 20 bucks an hour. You know, yeah, wow. Classes, so that's pretty cool. That's a pretty amazing segue. I, can't, <laughs> I, I imagine if I, if I told you two years ago that this time in two years you'd be, um, oh, yeah. you'd be studying a, an accounting <laughs> degree, you'd probably uh, kick yeah. it out of your restaurant. Yeah, well, again, I think I did do that a few times. Yeah, I? might have. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look, that's great, Chris. I think we'll probably wrap it up there. So thanks very much for your time. I suppose the last question that I typically uh, like to ask people on the show is, uh, is there anyone in particular they would like to see on the show or have me have on the show? Did anyone come to mind? Oh, wow, good question. Um, I don't know. I wonder, can, can I mention names? Do you have to mention names? Well, yeah, all right. <laughs> what, what, what about one of our sort of um, project manager type mates, someone, someone like, like Nathan who's, who's been through a, a, um, a really interesting yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Nathan's actually, um, he's got a pretty interesting story. Right, now project manager for a very high profile building group doing, um, doing a fantastic, yeah. Yeah, no? Yeah, yeah. Good. And he, he's, he's had an interesting path as well. And, you know, isn't that it? It's, it's all about the path that we take and all the options, you know, all of the roads we can choose along the way. Yeah, good call. Yeah. All right, I'll reach out to him. Yeah. So, look, mate, thank you very much for your time. Enjoy your, the rest of your stay back in Sydney and, mm. um, yeah, we are. I hope the audience or your listeners out there got something from that. That's a pretty strong message there, and um, I think we touched on some pretty pretty good principles. So, mm. um, thank you very much, mate. Thank thank you for your time. Always always a pleasure. Okay, mate. We will uh, speak later, and uh, that is a wrap. Okay. Cheers, guys. So if you haven't already, head across to the siteshed.com and register for our toolbox talks where you'll be regularly sent great episodes just like this straight to your inbox so you'll never miss one. Uh, if you want to join the community, you can head across to the siteshed.com forward slash members where for a small monthly fee, you'll get access to regularly updated training material as well as access to our forum where you can mingle and collaborate with trade-based business owners just like you from all over the world. If you're enjoying this podcast, please head across to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. We greatly appreciate it, and it helps us spread the word and reach the masses. Likewise, if you know anyone that might benefit from the content we create, then please go ahead and share this with them. You've been listening to Toolbox Talks by The Site Shed. For more great content just like this, head across to thesiteshed.com and join the amazing community of savvy trade-based business owners. 
Thanks for tuning in, guys. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Please, if you did, head across to iTunes and leave us a review. We would very much appreciate that. Anyway, if you are a project-based trade business and you work in solar or bathroom renovations or kitchen renovations or roofing or something along those lines, and you would like to see some of the results that we've been showcasing in our marketing on for your business, thousands of percent return on ad spend, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 7,000, 13,000% return on ad spend, please head across to tradey.wiki forward slash pod for podcast. That's tradey.wiki forward slash pod for podcast. It will be well worth the conversation and I can't wait to chat with you. Ciao.